Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Welcome to another episode of Tales to Terrify. I've got a bit of in-house business to talk about before we get on to our two stories for the evening. When Larry passed, I had to scramble. There were many pieces of how the operating worked that I had no clue how they joined together to become a single episode of the podcast, let alone the success of the continuity of the podcast. When I finally managed to convince a couple people to join staff to help me out, I pledged that we'd work so that every single person on staff could be easily replaced, myself included. As we focused on more pressing and immediate matters, that pledge wasn't made good on. A couple of weekends ago, I attended a security conference in Richmond, Virginia, and heard someone use the phrase, the bus factor, for the first time. Simply put, the bus factor is, will your project fail if any given member of the team is hit by a bus? And the answer for Tales to Terrify currently is, yes, it will fail. Scott, Drew, and Seth could probably figure out how to put together an episode if I was suddenly removed from being able to participate in the podcast for deadly or other reasons. But once that file is made, there are actually a handful of stops it has to make to go from finished audio file to your podcast listening devices. Furthermore, when we had our transition to the paying market and utilized a far better and more formalized method for accepting submissions, Scott Silk took the reins of that process and has truly become the engine of that part of the show. If that infernal bus came his way, I'd probably pull the plug on the show, to be honest. Why am I telling you all of this? I'm going to ask each of them to host an episode of Tales to Terrify this year, if they're comfortable with it. I'm not going to twist anybody's arms here, and wanted to give you the heads up as to, at some point in the future, you'll hear a few episodes that have a different voice coming into your ears. It's not an emergency, but it's a practice for one. 
Behind the scenes, I'll be committing time to make sure I'm much more familiar with the entirety of the process, from an author submitting a story all the way up to its last leg of the journey, where I'm more familiar. And then, for anyone who is a project nerd, you know I'll be documenting it along the way, too. If we were a political podcast that commented on the week's happenings, this show would be an absolute cakewalk, but we're now operating where we are, planning episodes months in advance, and that means there are more moving pieces. And I'd like to ensure that as long as Tales of Terrify has authors wanting to have their stories aired here, narrators willing to lend their voice, and of course you too, listeners enjoying the dark fiction trickling into your ear canals, I'd like to be able to build it to survive us all. Here comes our two stories for the night. First up, Martin Adil Smith was born to a Persian mother and an English father in London, 1978. He completed a BA with honors in criminology at Middlesex University in 1999 before pursuing a career in commercial real estate. Martin's literary heroes are Stephen King, H.P. Lovecraft, and Anne Rice. He is passionate about music and, in particular, lesser-known acts such as Paradise Lost, Fields of the Nephilim, and Serpico. He lives in Scotland with his wife and daughter, and when he is not reading or listening to music, he pretends to write. Listen with me to Martin Adil Smith's Last Testament of Thomas Griffin. Wednesday, 11th February, 1801, Smalls Lighthouse, St. David's Peninsula, Wales. My darling wife, I did not do it. Whatever they tell you, know this and know it well. I am innocent. I did not kill Howell. It is no secret that there was a bitter history between the two of us and that you were its source. But I won your hand, and I swear, as the good Lord is my witness, that there was no longer any enmity between me and Hal. Whatever aggravation there was, we had long buried. Our stint as keepers on Small's lighthouse began as any other. Yet the winter storms that came upon us in December were like none that I have ever seen, and they have not yet abated. Forty-foot walls of water rose before us like curtains of iron. Our feeble abode is naught but timber that the whole swings and sways as if a cradle held in boughs. The entirety is rank with the stink of fish and salt and what little paraffin we have left. We should have been relieved in the middle of January, yet we both knew that none would come despite our being but twenty miles from the mainland. Neither God nor man would sail in a craft in such a tempest. We were resigned to an extended period in each other's company. Our supplies were sufficient, but as a precaution we began rationing. In truth, our service was spent cordially, although I must confess that I sensed a shadow over poor Howell. For many days his skin was grey and waxen, and spittle frothed at his lips, like some half-rabid dog. He had returned to the bottle, although not in the quantity of his past. I wished that he had found another after you had chosen me, but he claimed that none would suffice, 
although he vouchsafed that he would no longer pursue you. In the deepest dregs of his whisky, he would mutter darkly. At first, it was nothing but the childish mumblings of one who has not got his own way, but, as the nights wore on, it turned to something else, something wholly unnatural and an affront to our Lord. He spoke of such things, my love, that I hesitate to repeat them here. But you must know not just the truth, but the whole of the truth. He spoke of hermeticism. He spoke of gods before ours, a thelema and power. I confess that I do not know what made him drunker, the bottle or his foolish notion of dominating this mortal realm. The waves roil against my weary station, breaking my concentration and threatening to send both man and structure to a watery end. It was eleven days ago that I could bear it no longer. I declared to Hal that his recitation was a treason unto God and that he should recant. He laughed at me as a father laughs in the simple ways of his infant son. At this I produced the good book, and his countenance darkened such that I could no longer discern my friend from the shadow that gripped his mortal soul. He declared me a fool to worship a paper idol, and I regret that I retorted with harsh words of my own. In a rage he stood, sending his bottle to the floor, and I believed that he would have swung for me, yet something struck him. I have not the medical knowledge to explain what malady befell him, but his eyes bulged with pain as much as anger, and he staggered before collapsing to the floor, striking his head upon a wall-mounted lantern as he fell. Even before I reached his side, I knew he was no more. His eyes were wide, yet glazed, and a pool of his vital essence soaked into his once noble hair. He was quite dead, but it was not by my hand. You must believe me. Yet this is just but the start of my testament. I knew how this would appear to my peers. They would say that I won your hand for him, and in a fit of jealous insecurity I removed him forever from your consideration. This was not the case, I swear it. The lighthouse policies are clear. If one keeper expires... The other should commit his body to the sea, lest the rank corruption of flesh contaminates he who is left alive. My love, I confess that I, Thomas Griffith, did knowingly disobey this edict. I was afraid. I was so very afraid that in order to prove my innocence in Howell's death, I did construct a makeshift coffin and lash my one-time friend to the side of the lighthouse in the hope that when we were recovered, a physician would determine the cause of his death. But no recovery has yet come, and I fear that none will arrive in time. The waves come again, harder this time, so that I can barely grasp the paper on which I write. It dawns on me that this place is already a tomb for two. The wind wails and the ocean rises, and I am filled with trepidation that all hope is gone. The coffin that held Howell was ripped apart on the first night, and his cadaver hangs about the ropes that secure him, and I fear the thing he has done a deal with truly is the darkness itself. On the third night after his demise, there came a knocking at my window, 
and the storm brought the shrieks of an earth-bound soul. A rapping, a demand to be granted entry, an order that I should receive his company once again. Howell has no claim on me, yet I feel compelled by some influence, as though the shadow upon his immortal soul would seep into mine. Come the morning, I surveyed the wretch's corpse. The gulls had already taken his eyes, and the salt water had washed every trace of humanity from him, leaving naught but a bloated shell. But his smile! By the good Lord, that smile was a rictus that would force heaven to avert its eyes. Minds more learned than mine would declare it but a facet of death, and yet I know better. Hal's remains laughed at our Creator, and I admit to such fear that I quickly retreated into my lonely prison. That night, and every night since, he comes rapping. The wind brings his whispers of such foul things, and I deny him with less fervour each time. I know not what abomination binds him to this mortal coil, but still he comes. Sleep will not visit itself upon me, and I fear the long hours of the company of the dead are taking their toll upon my fragile sanity. My supply of paraffin runs low, and the approaching gloom fills me with dread. Howell has begun his call once more, and the storm brings his knuckles upon my pain. He whispers such things that no man should know, pleasures of the infinite carnal, the lands that lie beyond the veil, and the power that he would share with me, if I were to but invite him across the threshold. His words are not spoken by a mortal tongue, but appear in my mind. Yet they're more than words. I see the abominations of which he speaks. Night after night, hour after lonely hour, he shows me things that make me weep. Heaven on fire, creation folding and unfolding at his bidding. Two solid objects that transmute themselves by his word. Dear wife, there are things under the stars that no one should know. Visions and whispers grip my fragile heart with both terror and wonder. I fear that I cannot tell what is real and what is a dream. And still these revelations burn into my mind that I would scream until this lighthouse collapsed into an ocean grave. Howell bids that I should pick up his journal and share in his corruption and whilst fear still grips me, so too there is a gnawing hunger for just a taste of this monstrous power. Like the most base of creatures, a disease-ridden rat, his words chew and nibble at my resolve, until I fear that I should become worse than a monstrosity that whispers such falsehoods to me. I weep freely for you, for myself, and even for Howell. If I had such gifts, I could make the world anew and set it right for our fellow man. But like all fire, I know this power consumes. It would make a hollow thing of me, as it has Howell, twisting me to its own purpose. There are moments when I wonder if I can pick up such power, for the briefest of moments, to save myself from this eternal damnation, and put it down again, 
when I returned to the warmth of your arms. But I know that I could not. I am Thomas Griffith, and I am a good man. But these things he show me can break a man. The soft flesh of any woman yielding to my desire, the abundance of treasures to last a thousand lifetimes, dominations over the seas and skies like none before me, none could grasp that power and not wield it. And all I have to do is invite this evil in. God, lead me not into this monster's temptation, but deliver me from the devil. Yet he is persuasive. The wind's howl is becoming a scream, and under the force of the unrelenting waves, this place has taken on angles that are unfamiliar to me. I am reminded that not all graves are in the ground. Finally, the feeble glass has given way, and I can see Howell's crooked hand beckoning me again. Pray for me, my love, as I fear that my resolve is broken, and it will surely be this night that I unlock the lighthouse door. Your husband, Thomas Griffith. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That was Martin Adil Smith's Last Testament of Thomas Griffin, as read by Alex Weinley. Alex just wants me to let you know that he'll be at Worldcon 75 this year on a board with Rob Silverberg and others talking about when science fiction gets it wrong. If you happen to be in Helsinki this year, feel free to stop by and say hello. That goes double if you're a publisher. Thank you, Alex. Our second story comes from Kara Fox. Kara Fox is an English author trying to write her way out of the dark. She favors steampunk, horror, gothic romance, but you can find her anywhere that the stories sink their claws into you and the wine is flowing freely. Children of the Night, lend me your ears for Kara Fox's Still Waters. The two siblings exchanged a look of grim comprehension over the breakfast table when the butler laid the broadsheet in front of them. The morning post headline was painfully familiar to them now. In stark black and white, the proclamation that yet another child had gone missing on the shores of Lake Conmere drove away any hint of an appetite the two of them might have had. Jonathan Clancy leaned forward, 
his pale face a perfect mirror of the thinly veiled horror in the article he did not need to read. Taking only the merest of glances to confirm that the location was, as he thought, he drew a deep breath, then looked his sister in the eye again. Only an hour away from us, Selina. A spark of intrigue shone in her wide eyes. Are you thinking what I am, Jonathan? When it comes to such matters, we are often in accord, my dear sister. The elder of the two siblings, Jonathan had brought Selina to live with him at his London townhouse after the death of their parents in a carriage accident three years previously. Disapproving relatives suggested he would be far better off marrying her to a willing lord, but he knew his sister better than anyone else and was convinced she could never be satisfied with the constraints of a society marriage. He had been proven right. Selina thrived in London, and each new advance the scientific community made only increased her understanding of the new age of steam, until Jonathan became convinced she was easily on a level with him. Her assistance had been invaluable as of late, and he did not doubt that the many inventions in the basement beneath their townhouse would never have come to fruition without her insights. As he lifted his coffee cup to his mouth, she drummed her fingers against the tablecloth and pressed him further. Then you too think we should take a trip to Lake Conmere? Jonathan drank deeply, waiting for the rush of caffeine to speed through his veins before he answered her. I think it is our duty to do so, Selina. We have experience in such supernatural matters as this purports to be, after all, and we now have the necessary tools with which to explore the lake's depths. Precisely, Selina said seemingly oblivious to the breakfast the maid had set before her. It seems a perfect occasion to both test our newest invention and simultaneously rid society of whatever scourge is taking children from the shores of the lake. I do not see how we can possibly decline the opportunity. Despite the circumstances, Jonathan's thin lips quirked back into a reluctant smile as the doorbell rang and the butler hastened away to answer it. Selina's enthusiasm was infectious. Though an unknown peril lay ahead on the path they were set upon, she clearly had no fear, and when he considered all they had faced together in the past, he found himself just as intrigued by the mysteries of Lake Conmere. Their enemy beneath the lake was surely a formidable one, but it was one he was certain that, together, they were more than capable of defeating. A low buzz of indistinct conversation drifted through from the hall, and as the two siblings fell silent to listen to it, the butler returned to the dining hall with a crisp bow. "'Professor, ma'am, the inspector is here to see you,' he said. "'Shall I show him in?' "'So early in the day?' Jonathan said, "'not missing as he spoke the way that a faint blush spread across Selina's face. "'No matter. I have no objection to the early hour, if my sister does not.' "'No, not in the least,' Selina said. "'Please, Mr. Wilson, do show Inspector Byrne in, "'and have the maid set a place at the table for him. "'I rather suspect he has not taken time for breakfast yet today.' Silence reigned once more as the two servants fulfilled her command, and the tension grew thicker with each passing moment, thrumming in the still air between them as Selina twisted to face the door, her eyes near aglow with anticipation, an anticipation her brother suspected he knew the cause of. His own eyes narrowed as he rose from the table, when the butler led Inspector Robert Byrne into the room. "'Good morning, Jonathan,' the inspector said, as he reached up his mechanoid hand to remove the black helmet he wore as a mark of his rank. And you, Miss Clancy, I trust you are both well. Much better than the children lost to Lake Conmere, Jonathan said directly. Is that where you're here, Robert? Handing his helmet to the waiting butler, the inspector sighed heavily as he took a seat opposite Selina. She instantly reached across to pour him a cup of coffee, 
and he flashed her the briefest of smiles, despite the fact he had so clearly not slept overnight. Jonathan slowly nodded, content to wait for the inspector to speak. Robert Byrne was a good man. Though he wore the weight of every one of his thirty-five years, scarred both physically and mentally by all he had endured, he was a handsome man. Even the wounds he sustained in a particularly vicious hunt when he and Jonathan first met could not mar that. Byrne lost an arm, and Jonathan nearly lost his life at the hands of the beasts they found on the Yorkshire moors. But on that night they forged a friendship that endured throughout the decade that had since passed. He counted the inspector as his closest friend, even if he held the restrictions of the police force Byrne worked for in disdain. He far preferred to work as he and Selina did, answering only to themselves save for the rare occasions when the inspector sought out their help. It seemed today would be one of those days. He was anxious, and uncharacteristically so. Whatever happened at Lake Conway was enough to get beneath the exterior of the usually implacable inspector, and it seemed Selina too had noticed his discomposure. As she set the coffee pot back on the table, she met his intense stare without flinching. Have a drink, Inspector, she said quietly. Whatever you have come to say to us can wait a few minutes longer, I am sure. Byrne exhaled, clearly seeing the sense in her words. His brow was almost permanently furrowed. But of late, Jonathan had come to notice that whenever the Inspector was around Selina, the taut lines of his face softened. True to form, he visibly relaxed as he took a deep drink from the coffee she poured for him, still watching her out of the corner of his eye when he eventually began to speak. So I can presume from your greeting and the broadsheet I see on the table that you know why I am here at so early an hour. Indeed we do, Jonathan said. I am not surprised in the least to see you, Robert. But I suspect you know too that I should not be here, not when the two of you are civilians, despite the assistance you have rendered me on many an occasion. He tilted his head to the side. Hence the early hour? Indeed. My superiors in the Met have been leaning very heavily on the press not to report too many of the details for fear of provoking mass public hysteria, but the last four have been impossible to suppress, particularly with the latest victim being the daughter of a lord. The last four? Selina leaned forward again as Jonathan rested his chin on top of entwined fingers, allowing all he had heard to sink in. Then there have been more than has been reported? Unfortunately so, Miss Clancy. The inspector picked at his breakfast listlessly, letting loose another low sigh as he pushed the plate away and rose to pace around the confines of the small dining room. Yet even as he moved around the room, his eyes constantly flickered back towards her. I am afraid that, as far as we are aware, the total number of children lost to the lake is nine. Nine? Good God, Inspector Byrne! Byrne started towards her as she paled. My apologies, Miss Clancy. I have distressed you. I forget, with the height of your intellect and all you have achieved, that you have a tender nature. Please, I beg you, accept my apologies. Selina's hands were trembling. But while Jonathan wordlessly watched the exchange between the two of them, she drew a deep breath and forced a smile back onto her face for the inspector's benefit as he laid one hand on her shoulder. It is already forgotten, inspector, she said, though her eyes widened when they came to rest on his hand. Please, think no more of it. If you request it, then of course, Byrne said, the faintest of hoarse notes to his voice not escaping Jonathan's attention. Shall I continue, then? Please do. Then, as I said... The total number of abductions, or more likely murders, we are aware of is nine. 
Of course, that does not preclude any further historic incidents we are not yet aware of. From what we have discovered, it seems the lake is a particular focus of local mythology. In years past, children and women were often warned away from the shores of the lake, but with all the advancement society has seen of late, local myths and legends are no longer afforded the gravitas they once were. Selina twisted her head back to look up at the inspector as he belatedly stepped back, running one hand through his dark hair as his shoulders slumped. Devoted to science though I am, I cannot help but think that a shame, she said. Something we are in accord on, Miss Clancy. My colleagues in the Met scorn such things, but the rumours of something supernatural in the lake that I heard are why I have come here today to seek the assistance of you and Jonathan. But you have done so without permission? Yes, he said. Contrary to my superior's wishes for silence, I cannot risk this escalating any further. The intervals between the abductions are getting closer together. One would almost suspect that whatever monster is committing the crimes grows bolder, ever more arrogant when none dare to challenge it. Caution, Robert, Jonathan cut in grimly. It is dangerous to anthropomorphize a foe in such a way. Treat him as the basis of beasts and you will not go far wrong. Byrne inclined his head. You are the expert in such matters, of course, so I shall defer to you on that. Still, though, some superstitious corner of my mind clings to the belief that on this occasion our foe is most deserving of the emotions I would assign to it. I suppose that is something we shall soon discover, Selina said. Then you will hunt down the monster. Jonathan glanced across at his sister, reading her answer in her eyes without needing to ask. Yes, he said. Your thoughts are in accord with ours, Inspector. Enough is enough. We shall not stand by and watch while more children are lost to the lake. The relief his words brought to the Inspector was plain to see. Oh, I knew I could trust in the two of you, Jonathan. You realise, though, that you will have to search beneath the surface of the lake? I do. Fortunately, thanks to Selina, we have the precise device this mission calls for. Though untested, I have every confidence in her ability. The depths of the lake will not be a problem for us, Robert, but I confess I am somewhat uneasy about being able to explore it unwatched. Byrne waved away his concerns. That will not be a problem. It has been arranged for a policeman to be stationed there at all times. And most fortuitously, tonight is my shift to stand guard. If you can endeavour to reach Lake with whatever you need at midnight tonight, Jonathan, I shall turn a blind eye to your presence. The two men exchanged a mirthless smile. Very good, Jonathan said. We should be there, Robert. Superb. Byrne drew a deep breath and took up position in front of the fireplace before he spoke again. In that case, I have only one more thing to say before I bid you good day. And what is that? The furtive, covetous glance the inspector let slip towards Selina made that plain. Jonathan inhaled sharply, but he slowly nodded to give his permission without words. Byrne finally allowed his gaze to fix unflinchingly upon Selina. I want you to promise to take care tonight. If I had my way, I would ask you to let your brother go alone, but I know to do so would be futile. But please, Miss Clancy, Selina, be careful. For my sake, if not your own. Jonathan turned away, pretending not to listen as his sister left her seat at the table and crossed the room to stand at the inspector's side. It would not be long now until Byrne spoke his intentions, he was certain of that. And what was more, it seemed that as far as Selina was concerned, they would be welcomed. They spoke under their breath a few moments longer, 
and she gently brushed away a stray hair from the inspector's crisply pressed uniform before she finally backed off. His hand shook as he retrieved his helmet and forced it back onto his head. When Selina offered to see him to the door, he instantly agreed with a fresh smile that stripped away years from his face. Jonathan stared after them long after they left the room, and it was not until he heard Selina move into the upper levels of the house that he too left in search of the butler. Whatever his private thoughts were on the pressing concern that he would soon lose his sister's valuable companionship, there was much to be put in place before tonight. Mr Wilson, he said crisply, would you arrange for the Swift to be ready to fly tonight? Miss Clancy and I will leave no later than eight this evening, and I imagine there is every chance we will not return until the morning. But of course, sir. The butler bowed and then bustled away to ready the airship, and Jonathan retreated to the basement to see about transporting everything else he and Selina would need for their venture into the lake. The diving suits she fashioned last month were as yet untested, she had every confidence in their ability to withstand the depths of the lake. Though uneasy about what they might have to face, a slow-burning anticipation began to build inside him throughout the day, and by the time he and Selina found themselves on board their airship, Jonathan's fear was no more than a memory. It was impossible to be afraid, for on board the Swift he always felt nigh-on invincible. No more than twenty feet in length, the Swift was tiny in comparison to the airships of Her Majesty's Royal Navy that now ruled the seas, but she was theirs. True, a journey across the Atlantic was surely beyond her, but taking the two of them to Lake Conmere with the utmost speed and secrecy was a task she was easily capable of. Far safer to travel by air, and far less chance they would be accosted by those who would rather see the lake's secrets remain that way. Selina ran her hands over the ship's wheel, a distinct thrill flitting across her pale face when she glanced back over her shoulder at her brother. "'May I take the helm this evening, Jonathan?' "'Of course, if you wish.' She could fly the swift just as well as he could, and truth be told he welcomed the idea of relaxing for a while before tackling the horrors of Lake Conmere. Experienced as he was at hunting down the monsters that roam the shadows of his country, he knew that the difficult environment of the lake would make tonight's hunt more dangerous than perhaps any before. Jonathan crossed the deck to watch the world below recede as Selina took to the helm and started the steam-powered engines, allowing the swift to rise into the air with as much grace as her namesake. Selina steered the airship higher and higher until the figurehead of the swift cleaved apart the low-flying clouds as they finally eased forward, high amongst the skies of London. The sky slowly began to darken, and by the time they circled over Lake Conmere, night had fallen in earnest. Selina bit on her lip as she gently eased the swift down, finally coming to rest in the shadow of the trees surrounding the lake, as a figure strode towards him out of the darkness. Byrne lifted a hand in greeting as Jonathan lowered the boarding plank to the ground. "'Good evening, you two. No trouble on the flight here?' "'None at all,' Jonathan said, before disappearing below deck in search of the aquatic suits they would need for their mission. When he re-emerged to carry them to the side of the lake, Selina had left the ship, was now standing far closer to the inspector than proprietary demanded. Jonathan hesitated, aware that if he spoke he would intrude upon a deeply private moment between the two of them. Difficult though it was to countenance the thought of losing his closest confidant and cherished colleague, he saw now that after tonight it would be high time to encourage the inspector to speak his intentions. Even a fool could see what there was between them, and Jonathan was no fool. Pretending to busy himself with setting the equipment on the grassy ground, 
He watched him out of the corner of his eye as the inspector took a step closer still, drawing a shallow breath and then lowering his head towards Selina's as he quietly spoke. I shall be waiting for you, Selina. And I will be back soon, Robert. Byrne briefly clasped Selina's hands, his face unreadable, but his eyes unnaturally bright when he let go again and turned away. She gazed after him without speaking, and by the time she finally returned to Jonathan's side, a deep crimson flush had spread across her face. Jonathan! she began awkwardly, but he shook his head. Tomorrow, sister, he said. Tell me tomorrow. Selina exhaled. You know? I have known for a while, Selina. It must wait until tomorrow, though, for tonight our duty calls us into the lake. You know as well as I that we can allow no distractions. Though Jonathan's words spoke of caution, they were clearly taken in the kindly sense in which they were meant. She smiled up at him and stole one last glance over her shoulder at the receding form of the inspector, before determinedly tugging on the aquatic suits they so painstakingly built together. Heavy and cumbersome, the suits and attached air tanks would nonetheless allow them a clear four hours beneath the surface in which to explore, more than enough time to cover the entirety of the lake. After stepping into his own suit, Jonathan tethered a rope between the two of them before he pulled on his helmet and tightened his hand around the mechanical steering column his suit possessed, one of Selina's ideas to give the suits propulsion under the water and lessened the effort needed to swim at the depths they would have to explore. It was time. Whatever lurked unseen beneath the implacable surface of the lake could be allowed to stay there no longer. Pausing only to pick up the harpoons they would need to tackle the monster they sought, the two siblings walked into the lake, allowing the still water to swallow them up. The bank was surprisingly steep, and within moments they were below the surface. The siblings struck out together into the water. To Jonathan's frustration they could see no more than ten feet in front of them. This would be an arduous task, but there was no time to be wasted fretting. Touching Selina's arm to gain her attention, he indicated that they should strike off for the centre of the lake. They found nothing, though. To his building frustration, there was no sign of the missing children or the creature that had taken them. He glanced down at the dial of the air tanks every so often, and all too soon he had to admit defeat. His sister, though, shook her head when he pointed to the surface. Instead she gestured to the left. He frowned and jabbed his hand at the surface again, trying to communicate without words that he was sure they had been this way before and found nothing. And what was more, the air in the tanks would surely be coming to an end. It was high time they headed back to the surface to refill the unit, but Selina was insistent. Tugging hard on the rope between them, she kicked her leg determinedly, wrenching her steering column forward and swam off towards the centre of the lake once more. Jonathan had no choice but to follow her, and to his amazement he saw her slowly clap her hands together as she twisted to face him in the water. "'There, Jonathan,' she mouthed. "'Don't you see it?' Selina's eyes shone with a feverish lustre, as she pressed her face up against a viewing panel. He had rarely seen her so excited, and some primal instincts made him tense as he followed her line of sight. The joined suit slowly glided to a halt in the water as Jonathan's hand tightened around his steering column, putting it back to act as a brake. It was not possible. What he saw before his widened eyes could not be there, yet he feared that this was no mirage. A vast, glittering castle rose from the murky depths, its turrets stretching so high 
that he could barely believe it couldn't be seen from the surface. The castle was so out of place amongst the dark lake that he gaped at it, not noticing, at first, what was now circling the two siblings in the water. The nine children they sought were within his grasp, but there was no trace of human warmth or emotion in the depths of their sunken eyes as their tails shimmered in the faint shaft of light breaking through from the surface that seemed so very far away. Their tails! Jonathan's head spun as he twisted to the side to look at Selina. Her eyes had widened once more, this time in horror at what they saw before them. The children had undergone some bizarre, supernatural transformation, and every single one of his instincts screamed out the imperative need for flight, even before a tenth figure drifted elegantly towards them. This was no child. Instead, he saw another man, a merman. He'd only seen pictures of them, convinced they didn't truly exist, but there could be no doubting the evidence of his own eyes. His heart hammered against his ribcage as the serenely beautiful creature's mouth opened, seeming to form some mockery of a song as he swayed gracefully in the water. Jonathan could hear nothing of the song that the merman sang, but, to his horror, it seemed Selina was not as impervious as he was. Her head rolled to the side inside her helmet. Before he even realised what she was doing, she slashed her blade through the rope that tethered the two of them together. Without hesitating or taking her eyes away from the merman for even a moment, she wrenched her helmet free of her head and tugged her protective suit away from her body. This was madness! His stomach lurching, Jonathan made a desperate lunge at the helmet to force it back onto her head, but it fell through Selina's outstretched hands as the merman imperiously crooked one finger and she kicked her legs, gliding through the water towards him despite Jonathan's best efforts to snatch her away. Disadvantaged by the cumbersome suit, he was far too slow to reach her before the merman pulled her into his arms. Selina was clearly running out of air, but her head rolled to the side again in submission as the merman's hand slipped around to rest against the nape of her neck. She was enthralled to him, and even Jonathan found himself unwillingly entranced by the incredible sight before him. How could something so beautiful truly be a monster? But then he swam towards them and reached out to tear his drowning sister free of the merman's grasp, and in an instant the lake erupted into chaos. The children swarmed around him, an undulating mass of limbs and tails he could not break free from, however hard he tried. His screams rang out in the confines of the suit as their faces swam before him, horribly contorted as the gaping chasms of their mouths mocked him, the green pallor of their skin near alien, as together they twisted and writhed in a grotesque charade of some immortal ballet, blocking his view of both Selina and the monster who had captured her. For a brief moment, he managed to push up in the water and see past the child mermaids, only to see Selina lay her head against a merman's bare chest as triumph blazed in his silver eyes. Her fair hair streamed out behind her, a billowing halo in the water's embrace that, for a moment, distracted Jonathan from the impossible truth of what had happened to his sister. Her breeches had ripped and were slowly sinking towards the floor of the lake, for they no longer fit her. Instead of the long and slender legs that were there mere minutes before, Selina now possessed a shimmering, scaled tail that rivalled the merman's own. Soul-destroying horror consumed him, for he knew his precious sister was lost. No sooner had that terrible realisation clarified inside his mind than nine pairs of tiny hands seized his suit and dragged him back to the surface, 
impervious to the way he kicked and thrashed against them. No! Jonathan roared inside his suit, twisting his head back to steal one last glimpse of his sister as her hand slipped into the merman's and they swam away from him without as much as a backwards glance. Selina moved in the water with a grace that suggested she had been doing this just as long as the ethereal captor who had stolen her away, as much a part of the underwater world now as the castle she disappeared into. His head spun as consuming grief pounded through him with every shallow, panting breath he drew, and tears blinded his vision as the children forced him up through the water, soaring back to the surface with a dizzying speed that took what remained of his breath away. With an inhuman strength, they launched him through the surface and back to the shore of the lake, where the pale inspector was pacing back and forth. Where is your sister? Wild-eyed, Byrne fell to his knees as Jonathan wrenched off his helmet, curled into a tight ball at the side of the lake, and began to sob as he never had before. Jonathan, where is Selina? The first faint streaks of amber shot across the night sky to herald the coming of dawn, but the orb of the full moon still hung lazily over their heads, reflected on the unmoving surface of the lake that concealed a world of horrors, a world that had stolen Selina away from them. Numb with grief, Jonathan lifted one trembling hand to point at the serene surface, beneath which his sister was forever lost to them both. Gone, was all he could say. That was Kara Fox's Still Waters as read by Matt Dovey. Matt Dovey is very tall and very English and is most likely drinking a cup of tea right now. He has a scar on his arm where an airship line lashed him as it came loose in a godhead thunderstorm. He now lives in a quiet market town in rural England with his wife and three children, and despite being a writer, he still hasn't found the right words to properly express the delight and joy he finds in this wonderful arrangement. His surname rhymes with Dobie, and any similarities to the dwarf are purely coincidental. He does boring stuff with computers for a living. He got into writing because he thought it'd pay well and the world would be falling over itself to read his genius. He has since been thoroughly disavowed of both notions. He is a member of the Codex Writers Group and an associate editor, i.e. slush monkey, at Podcastle. He is the winner of the Golden Pen for Writers of the Future, Volumes 32, 2016, and was shortlisted for the James White Award in 2016. Thanks to the tireless and loving efforts of his wife, he has time not only to write but also to homebrew wine, photograph everything, and run around a field with a pretend sword and a silly accent in the name of LARP. That's live-action role-playing. Writing has stolen all his computer game time, though, and adult life has stolen all the money he used to spend in Games Workshop. Thank you, Matt. That'll be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes. Our show is produced by our editor, Scott Silk, and associate editors, Seth Williams and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Leitze, and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website 
www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.